0: I love life, I love living, I, I believe in good, I believe in beauty, but I also think that it's important not to turn a blind eye to all the messed up things that are going on on our planet.
1: Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true, how they feed their good wolf. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond, but at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless... Thanks for joining us, everyone. Our guest this week is George Watsky, who goes by the stage name Watsky. He's a rapper and poet from San Francisco, and we had a chance to talk to George as he's wrapping up his U.S. tour. His latest album is called Cardboard Castles, and you can find more details about him on our show notes at oneufeed.net slash watsky.
3: Thanks for joining us today, George. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So our podcast is called The One You Feed, and it's based on an old parable uh, that goes something like uh, there's an old Cherokee grandfather who is talking to his grandson, and he's saying to him, "Uh, you know, in life, we have two wolves inside of us that are always fighting. One is good and kind and loving, and the other is is bad, you know, greedy or hateful or self-pitying. And the grandson thinks for a second, and he says, well, grandpa, which one wins? And he says, the one you feed. So our podcast is really about how people feed their good wolves. And that means very different things to very different people. So I guess the first question I'd have for you is sort of what comes to mind when you, uh, when you hear that parable and, and how do you think it relates to what you do uh, personally and in your work?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's very profound. It's awesome. I mean, the first thing that springs to mind is just that I'm not a perfect person, that I know that the capacity for evil exists inside me. I've seen it rear its head, but I also believe that every human being is good too. And you know, as an artist and as a person, we get to choose on a daily basis what direction we wanna take our lives and our art. And I've tried to do that with honesty. I've tried my best to do it with integrity every step of the way. Uh, I try to make the choices that I think I'm gonna be able to live with and that my parents are gonna be proud of me for. And I fail sometimes, but I'm very proud of the the little empire and world that we've built with our fellow artists that we're on the road with, you know, so I think that relates to everyone, you know, everyone is fighting a constant struggle for trying to let the good parts of themselves emerge and nobody's perfect
3: yeah, I, I and that's that's one of the things that resonates to me uh, about your work is that that struggle uh, is is evident. But there's a clear um, there's an acknowledgement of it as well as a an attempt to sort of an attempt that there's effort that has to go into sort of the uh, the positive. And there was I was reading some uh, I've, something you had somewhere where you're talking about um the, uh, the, the kill the hipster, uh, save your hood. And you're, uh, you say in one of your comments somewhere that, you know, the most important part of that is to take a look in the mirror. And I thought that was really interesting.
0: No- right on. Yeah. I mean that whole song. And I think that people, the problem with that is that that's a five-and-a-half-minute song where I get to the self-awareness portion of it about four-and-a-half minutes into the song. And some people with today's modern attention span don't stick around to see the message evolve. But a huge part of my work is um, not so much just diagnosing wrong society, but taking those things that I see wrong and then turning the mirror on myself. I mean, it's, it's the same as Tiny Glowing Screens, part two, the poem that I have. It's a trope that I use in a lot of my stuff, which is diagnose an ill in the world and then figure out how I'm implicated in that. Because I don't think that a message is as powerful if you remove yourself from responsibility. You know, like if you're talking about global warming being a problem with the world, how am I a participant in that? You know, that carries more weight than saying, hey, you guys who are screwing up our planet, why don't you get it together? You know, there, there's nothing more powerful than saying, I'm a part of this problem. We are all a part of this problem. Now let's look at it together.
3: The other thing I was uh, looking at of yours that I really liked was the letter to your 16-year-old self. I think that's one of the most powerful things that you've done. And it probably resonates with me a lot because I have 15-year-old boys. right? And so, you know, they're at that age where they're starting to make their decisions about, you know, what they're going to do with their life. And as a parent, you sort of sit by – semi helplessly at this age. I mean, you can, you have influence, you talk to them, but they're going to, they're kind of at the age they're going to do what they want to do. And, and I, I love the, the positivity that's in that letter um to yourself, as well as the acknowledgement of how challenging it's going to be at certain times. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, I
0: just think that that era, like 15, 16, your freshman and sophomore year of high school, at least for me, that's when I kind of found myself. And those, those things, those Parts of my identity that came out in that time are things that are still with me today. You know, that's really when I feel like I became an adult in many ways, and like the, the man that I am was kind of became concrete. And not that I'm not changing, but that's when so much identity comes in. And it's a message in a lot of my pieces, which is I don't have all the answers, that there's a balance between hopelessness and hope. That there's a balance between ugliness and beauty. I mean, letter to my 16 year old self, tiny glowing screens, part two. It's kind of all different variations on that theme of, I believe in life. I love life. I love living. I I believe in good. I believe in beauty. But I also think that it's important not to turn a blind eye to all the messed up things that are going on in our planet. And you know, I I don't have a message that's as appealing as say a religious leader who can say, here are all the answers. This is how you should live your life. I the message that I have is a little bit less appealing than that in many ways. My message is that I don't have the answers and that none of us have all the answers and that we're all kind of trying to puzzle through this. Uh, and I've actually, I had a girl email me through my manager a couple of weeks ago saying, how could you do that to me with tiny glowing screens part two? Like you built me up to believe in hope and optimism. And then at the end you said, well, but it's really kind of all meaningless at the end. And um, you know, that is my, that's the core message of my work is that, is that life is worth living even though it sucks sometimes, and that you just have to, you have to ride the roller coaster and just enjoy it for what it is.
3: Another thing that uh, my, my, uh, one of my boys said, if you're going to talk to Watsky, you got to ask him a question. He said, what, what is it about his little cousin on the record? You know, your little cousin's all over the record. And, and I said, I think it's because he's adorable and he loves his <laughs> cousin, but he seemed to think there might be more to it than that. So... Yeah, it's funny. Actually, people assume we're
0: related, but I am not related to that kid. His name is Norton. And I actually met him through casting him in a music video. I'm trying to remember the first thing I did with him was a promo from a Bluegrass album when I just needed a little cute kid to say, hey, Watsky, why are you doing a Bluegrass hip hop album? That sounds really weird. And uh, and that's all. I just shot a little promo video with him. But then he, I ended up talking to him on set and making this connection with this kid, who, in a lot of ways, reminds me of myself when I was younger. And Norton and his mom have become like friends of mine. And. He lives in L.A. He's a very quirky kid who he's been getting bullied in school and stuff. And so I've kind of become a mentor to him and went to his jujitsu ceremony graduation and like I went to go see The Hobbit with him and his mom and I went to see his play in North Hollywood. I kind of have like a little big brother little brother relationship with him. And uh, when I was kind of coming up with cardboard castles and figuring out what glue was going to hold the album together, I thought, you know, so much of it is about coming of age and having realizations of things in the past, and I thought, how cool would it be to get a kid who I feel like articulates a lot of the things that I was going through when I was younger and actually have him provide the perspective from an honest place.
3: There's, like, only one bully in my class. He just thinks he's all cool. He thinks he's smarter than me. He, th- he thinks a lot of things.
0: What's really cool about it is that there are unscripted moments of honesty from a 10-year-old, or an, and at that time, an 8-year-old kid who was just kind of trying to you know, he, he wasn't filtering his thoughts. He was just talking about growing up. And, I, you know, the thing that I'm constantly in search of is honesty, uh, mm-hmm. moments, uh, unscripted moments that reflect something that we can all relate to. And and he was kind of that glue that held the album together. He said so many things that were, like, to me, I was like, like the idea of feeling your the impending doom of turning 10 years old <laughs> nice. because you'll never be nine anymore and just, like, you know, how how much weight you put on everything when you're that age because that's what you know. And so um, that's the answer. He's not my cousin. He's just a random kid that I've created a connection with and who I'm trying to not have too close a connection with because, like, if things go wrong in his life, he'll text me and I'll, and he'll, he'll ask me for advice and I'll be like, dude, don't text me. Like, ask your parents. <laughs> if I give you the wrong advice and then you go and get punched in the face in school, I, I don't want that on my hands, you know, like, you – uh you gotta, you gotta let your parents do that. And I'm, I'm trying to be a positive figure in his life without being too, too present.
2: Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022 find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash my to see the scholarships you may qualify for. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Yeah, he's he's uh, he is a, he's funny. The the just the things he says come come unexpectedly. When you, you were just talking about the um, the turn you know, he was mortified about turning 10. Um, And at the very end of that, you say something. You say 10 is a great year, something like that. And then you go on and say the thing that used to help you was your parents would make funny faces and tell you stories. And then you kind of go into the song. You want to share a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, I love my mom and dad. Hi, mom and dad. If
0: you happen to be watching, it's possible my dad follows my online activity closer than I do, so he might be. Um, My parents were really Great parents to me. They, my dad is a psychotherapist and was also a poet. Um, he's a writer and he has, you know, million degrees. He's one of the smartest guys I know. And my mom is an elementary school librarian now. And they both read to me a lot growing up. Very active. My dad showed up at all my baseball games, even if I was struck out three times and sat on the bench. Um, and. Yeah, I think them reading to me was one of my favorite things about growing up that we did bedtime every night and reading time and um, he would read me novels and think that definitely like spiked my intellectual curiosity and never, you know, being smart in our household was not something that you should be ashamed of or embarrassed of. Um, You know, it was just, there's a lot of curiosity and um,
3: a love for language and a love for art. Did you go through any uh, adolescent rebellion period towards your parents?
0: You know, I I went through periods of, like, angst and being a teenager and, like, not wanting to hang out with my parents all the time and being embarrassed of them and the kids, the stuff that all kids do. But I was never like, I hate you guys. Like, I'm moving out of the house and running away. It, it was never that much. You know, I always knew that they loved me and wanted the best for me. Um, but I, every kid, most kids of that age, I feel like, have a period where they don't want to be best friends with their parents anymore. So I had that, but... Now I'm 27 and I have a great
3: relationship with my folks and I call them all the time and love seeing them. Yeah I think for teenagers there's a it's part of their their duty to distance themselves from their parents it's part, just part of what they have to do um, yeah. and so to, to some degree and some of it's uh, you know better or worse that's one of the things I you know there's a lot of things I like about what you're doing but I love it when my sons and I can find something that we both genuinely enjoy and can share. And, and your music is one of those things. So that's really great because it, it does get hard to connect sometimes. And it's nice to find those things that are genuine and real.
0: Right on. Yeah, I, well, I appreciate that. That's awesome. And I think it's it's been really cool seeing the kind of people who show up to our shows and seeing that sometimes it's 15 or 16 year old kids and you know we and then we get clusters of people who are like in their mid-30s and mid-40s who relate to the poetry and love it too so we bring out a motley crew definitely to our (laughs) events and i think that's great because it means it's reaching a broad variety of people
3: um another question for you around you know there's a theme that runs through uh, a lot of what you do is um the the concept of work can you talk about kind of what what work means to you and 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 the value that that has
0: yeah well i'm self employed i am an independent artist which means that if i'm going to go on tour and i'm going to make an album it has to come from me i'm not i've no one breathing over, down my neck to say george you got to get up at 9 and do this and you know you got to be on the clock or else it's you know time is money it it, it comes from me because uh we're doing this as a labor of love. And I feel like, especially for someone in my position who gets to be an, a professional artist and gets to perform and gets to follow his passion, you know, it's not that people who are in these luxury jobs should be able to be lazier than everyone else. I feel like if you're going to have one of the jobs that's coveted by 99.9% of the population, you have a duty to actually treat it like a real job and work really hard because. It's a hell of a lot more fun doing what I do than being a fry cook or shoveling in a mine somewhere which is what most human beings have to dedicate their lives to or something of that variety if it's a desk job even. You have to do something that you don't want to be able that you don't want to have to do from 9 to 5 in order to, you know, pay rent and pay the bills. And for me, I'm in this extremely lucky position to get to do exactly what I want to do. And for me to be lazy and flippant about that opportunity would be a criminal travesty. Like, I I believe so strongly that I am in a privileged position and that since I love what I do, I have a duty to try and do it the best I can and work really hard yep. at it.
3: And, you know, that's pretty much as far as it goes. And it seems that you, you have, a, you know, clearly had this had this work ethic for for a long time. And I'm always interested in people who are successful because there's tends to be two things that sort of, at least th- that I notice that are driving. One is just the love of what you're doing, the, 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 the satisfaction of doing work that's good. And then the second is the desire to be successful at it. And, and I sort of have heard both coming through in, in your music. How do you, how do those two relate to each other?
0: Well, I think that this is like the the fundamental paradox of my life and of a lot of artists lives is knowing that we don't matter but wanting to matter a lot at the end of the day you know and and I think that the idea of trying to be successful is is my drug you know everyone has a poison some people it's alcohol some people you know every everyone has a balm that soothes them and at the end of the day the positive reinforcement that what I'm doing is good is what my poison is. It's what my drug is, and I've, you know, from a very young age, I, I've had this feeling. You know, I'm going to put my cards on the table. I'm not a religious person. I don't believe in the afterlife. At least from from what I've gathered, and the the lens that I have to view the world, that is not something that is a part of my life. And that that fear of not existing and knowing that I love this life so much. Means that I've, from a very young age, felt like I have a very brief time on this planet to make my mark and to exist and to to do something meaningful. And you know, it's that it's that constant struggle against wanting to matter. And you know, since I was fifteen or sixteen, I kind of felt like the clock was ticking, and I I only have so long to kind of make an impression. And and it can be a bad thing too, because sometimes constant seeking out of validation is not healthy. And you have to be able to to exist and be happy without being validated all the time. So there's not really a simple answer to that question. You know, I'm struggling constantly against trying not to care too much about what people think about my stuff versus also taking a pride in it and being able to have self-satisfaction that what I'm putting out into the world is good. So it's kind of a constant push and a pull between those two things.
3: It's fairly timely in that today was the, I think it started today, maybe yesterday, the the whole thing with Joe Rogan and his podcast and yeah. sort of, you know, a bizarre, uh, you know, a sort of attack of, of slam poetry and, uh, and of yours in general. And I thought your response was really, really well done. How much does that sort of stuff, you know, it, it is a somebody not validating you, not doing that. How much do the, do the haters get to you?
0: Um, People, the, the things that get to me most are the well thought out criticisms and Joe Rogan's, didn't actually bother me that much because it was very clear from listening to the podcast that he just kind of had a producer pull out an example of a white person doing slam poetry and and that's what he wanted to go after so i actually thought that it was an opportunity for me to use that random coincidence as a way to actually have a meaningful conversation about the merits of spoken word poetry what does get under my skin is when i feel like somebody says something very insightful and well thought out that is that you know that unearths insecurities that i have which happens occasionally, although I'd say 90% of the time on the internet, someone just writes like, gay, lame, <laughs> and you know, that's that's a lot easier to deflect because it's, it's not well thought out. But yeah, I, I think I'm pretty good at, at having a thick skin, and at this point, you know, comments pour in and pour in, and so many, the overwhelming majority of them are so positive that, you know, I'm, I'm doing fine comfortably. but I can't say that I'm perfectly immune to criticism. I think that the best thing is to wait a while. Like if somebody says something negative and you're heated about it, just take a day. Take 5 hours, take 10 hours, whatever you need until you're not so emotional about it and then try and actually figure out if there was some merit to it. Because sometimes you need to listen to criticism or else you're just going to go blindly on a path of thinking that you're all what you're doing is always golden. And sometimes you need to be able to say, "You know what? That criticism isn't is meritless and I don't need to listen to it. There's a balancing act between taking in criticism and actually being able to internalize it when it's appropriate and being able to brush it off when what you're doing is right and it's coming from somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about.
2: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator.
3: So back to uh, back to your uh, letter to yourself as a sixteen-year-old, you. Uh, there's another part in here that I love where you talk about you know you don't remember people's names. You're at the center of attention for all the reasons, and spend roughly six hours a night on your side watching Boy Meets World reruns. Is that was that a phase in your life? I watched a lot of TV. I watched a lot of TV, and the reason
0: that I like to pick on specific examples that I think illuminate trends, and to me, that speaks to an era and nostalgia for people who were in that era of growing up, but also just the idea of TV being medication, the way that technology is medication now. When I didn't want to think about stuff, I would just turn the tube on and I wouldn't have to think about it. So, so that was a way for me to, to distance myself from the things that I was afraid of and didn't want to think about was just constantly distracting
3: myself with stimuli. Yeah, and the, the great part that follows that is when you say you're capable of outgrowing that bullshit. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone is. Everyone is. Do you still, did you find for yourself that you hit a certain point where you started to, uh, work and make some progress and, and it, you got momentum that made it easier to keep doing that stuff? Or is it just sort of a constant battle for you to stay productive and and do the things that matter?
0: I had a, a real crisis, a real existential crisis around the time when I was 17, where, I I felt like I'd had these fears of growing up and of mortality that were bubbling underneath the surface, and I, con- I was pushing them down with distractions. And they bubbled up to the surface in a way that I couldn't ignore anymore when I was a junior in high school. And I became depressed, not because I was sad about anything specific, but just because all these things that I was afraid of, they really hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was like, and they, they they were very present for me. And so I went to therapy and I started talking to therapists and they were like, well, these are just things that all humans have to deal with and you're kind of making me depressed right now, so can't we talk about girls or something? And <laughs> you know, I wasn't getting the answers from anywhere. My parents were just like, oh, don't think about that. That's not for a long time. And none of those answers were satisfying to me. And the one thing that did actually kind of give me some relief was reading books by this guy named Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a a Buddhist philosopher and very simple, basic Buddhist messages of living in the present moment and of realizing that if you're afraid of something, the only thing that you can do is face that fear head on and actually allow yourself to be afraid. And actually, it's something that Louis C.K. talked about in his recent clip that went viral on Conan about just like allowing yourself to feel shitty things sometimes. And if you feel fear and you feel anxiety, terror is a natural human thing. And if you allow yourself to feel it, then what's going to happen is your body is going to accept it and then you're going to have this wave of actually positive emotions that come after that. And so, um, when I was around 17, I had that kind of realization and I think trended Buddhist a little bit and I think that helped me a lot and since then, I, you know, I've been a very hard worker my whole life since then. I think the last 10 years I've just, if anything, worked too hard. I think that the, ba- the battle for me is really trying to prioritize my personal life and love and family uh, and, and working on my career comes naturally to me and it's making sure that I'm feeding the other things that
3: is something that I need to do and remember to do all the time. You were talking about uh, in in Tiny Glowing Screens too, uh, sort of meaninglessness and you know the the universe is so huge how could we possibly matter
0: there's 7 billion 46 million people on the planet and most of us have the audacity to think we matter hey you hear the one about the comedian who croaked someone stabbed him in the heart just a little poke but he keeled over because he went into battle wearing chainmail made
3: of jokes and then you went on to say that you found a way to find meaning sort of within that. Can you share a little bit about that?
0: I think that, that you know, humans have been thinking about this forever. It's what, like, almost every Shakespeare poem is about. It's how are you going to exist beyond your short existence. And for me, the answer isn't trying to build up a legacy that's so huge and unavoidably awesome that people are going to be talking about you for centuries. It's finding meaning for yourself. It's it's finding joy, you know, one of the things that gets talked about a lot in these Buddhist texts is you can't just find joy and pleasure in the fireworks that life gives you, which are, you know, weddings and babies being born and, you know, hooking up with the person that you always wanted to be with and seeing, you know, the sunset. Those are explosive moments that life gives you, but also being able to be excited about the feeling of washing your hands and of sipping on a cup of tea and just the breeze blowing on you, you know, that, that you have to be able to marvel at the life that we have just for the sheer reason that it's amazing that we even get to be alive and to be able to be in awe of life on a daily basis is really important. And I profoundly believe that, that like this life is amazing and it's for, you know, we, we don't, we get used to things we get used to technologies that are given to us and we stop being amazed by them but technology is amazing and our bodies are amazing and the the birds flying through the air is amazing and and we don't take enough time to actually realize those things and so that that's what i work on the most is trying to actually let myself be in awe of little things and and when you step back there's a lot of cool stuff going on
3: it's uh it's great to hear you talking about uh Buddhism and Thich Han as you are framed in a Zen background. Where are you? I,
0: I'm i actually in Indianapolis right now in the basement of a Shriners club where um, we're having a show tonight. We're playing a place called the Old National in Indianapolis. We're on tour. Um, but yeah, I mean, these these things that I'm talking about are... Are things that are addressed in every major religion. Also, you know, I, I don't mean to to exclude it to Buddhism. It's it's things that you can find in Christianity. It's things that you can find in Judaism and and Islam. And it's also things that you can find in in atheist thinkers too. You know, these these are not things that are exclusive to one faith or another. They're just things that I think,
3: you know, a lot of smart people have jointly realized over the years. Yeah, we've had, we've actually interviewed uh, two Buddhist teachers uh, so far for this, um, and we're, we're interviewing a guy coming up who's really fascinating. He's, I don't know if you know who Viktor Frankl is. He, mm-hmm. he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. It's very applicable to what we're talking about, because Viktor Frankl was in concentration camps. They killed his family. They killed his parents, and in there he came to the realization that the last human freedom he had was his ability to sort of choose his attitude and to choose what it meant. And he he formed a uh, form of psychotherapy called logotherapy, which is all about making your own meaning. That there is no meaning in life that is um, uh, universal. It is your own, you know you kind of have to make your own meaning. So, right. This is interesting with yeah. this sort of uh. ties into that and I was actually thinking earlier because I think a a lot about that too that sort of all the religions they're all sort of saying the same thing um, which is to to give a hater a hug right
0: yeah turn the other cheek the window dressing is, is different but the core is the same yep why the hell not give a hater a hug
3: So that, that covers – is there anything you want to – you think is important to what we're discussing that uh, we haven't covered that you want to say?
0: No, not really. I, th- I think we covered some really interesting territory. I mean I think my main thing that I would like to say is to – that I don't think I have any of the answers. to. You know, I don't want to seem like I'm coming off like I know exactly – how anyone should live their life. And I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this podcast who are from all walks of life, different faith backgrounds and stuff. And I used to perform at colleges and universities all over the country, which meant that when I was in college, I would be going to a lot of red states and perform. And I'm from San Francisco, so like that's from the other end <laughs> of the spectrum. And I was actually very challenged to uh, communicate with people who grew up across the political aisle from me, who grew up in very religious households, and the main thing that I came away with was feeling like we're divided so much as a culture, and we, there's so much opinion-based media that's going on right now, and it's being driven by putting wedges between people, and creating these false um, flashpoints between different groups of people, because that's what sells, and that's what, what drives clicks up. but. Everyone is trying to do good. You know, this world is not red or blue or black and white. And if you're Christian or if you're agnostic or atheist, you know, we're all on the same team. That is that's the last thing that I want to say,
3: you know. Perfect. That's a great way to end it. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you've uh, got a show to do in a little while. So um, and thanks. Thank Nils for me also, please, for uh, for helping us get this set up. Right on. We really no worries. Appreciate
0: nice, it. Nice to talk to you guys. Thanks, George.
3: All right, take care. care. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for listening to The One You Feed. You can find out more about Watsky and his work in our show notes at oneyoufeed.net slash
2: watsky.